Am I on here, Mike? You got me? You ever have one of those dreams where you want to say something? You want to scream, yell something out, but you can't speak? Have you ever been in a situation where you had something that needed to be said, but you found you didn't have a voice? For example, I remember when my grandmother was recovering from a stroke. She would get so frustrated because she wanted to communicate something to us, to her family, and she just couldn't do it. She wasn't able to write yet. She didn't have her speech back yet. And when those moments we finally understood what she was saying, she was so relieved that her voice had finally been heard. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. This is week number 31, and I've titled this, A Gentile Gets a Voice. Let me read the passage to you. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment because he had been deaf from birth. And they begged to lay him, they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, that's amazing. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And Jesus looked up to heaven and he sighed and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. It's an Aramaic word. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released, and the idea of release is chains were were broken away. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the moot to speak. I'm going to go through the historical and theological today, and then at the end, the personal section of our sermon is going to be a little different. Just be prepared for that. I want to talk about the history of this passage first. I want you to understand that while he's in these Gentile regions, his foray goes deeper and deeper, away from Jewish communities. He's traveling through Tyre and Sidon, and he arrives at a place called the Decapolis, And it's named after 10 very Greek-influenced cities, very Hellenistic. It's a godless area. There is no Jewish settlement. There's no religious thoughts of Jehovah. And he takes this complete roundabout trip going way further north than he ever had to to get to Decapolis. He could have gotten there pretty easy, but instead he takes the long way for the purpose of extending his time in this area so that he might continue to teach his 12 disciples about what his mission really was. He's already just put them through a hard time when when he took the, the Gentile woman and he healed her daughter in front of everyone. They had a problem with that because it goes against their culture of the blessings of God being for Gentiles. But here he is. In this region of ten cities, under the rule of Syria, free Greek cities, 
part of the ancient territory of Israel, but not in Israel proper anymore. It is completely a Gentile pagan area. It is rife with heathen, heathen, uh, heathens, pagan culture, ritual worship, and the lifestyle here in the Decapolis is about as non-Jew as you can get, for better or for worse. I can't imagine how uncomfortable the disciples are in this setting. And what happens is Jesus, as he keeps his focus on the Gentiles, he begins to heal a crowd of them. And these pagans from the Decapolis have heard the stories of Jesus. They've visited Galilee. They've heard about it. Many have seen it for themselves from the testimony that we learned about a few weeks ago, the well-known demoniac who was healed and went around and told everybody what had happened to him. And of course, just like everywhere else, Jew or Gentile, everybody starts lining up at his feet for healing. <clears throat> and the scripture has, says he heals many. He's healing all day. And the disciples at this point have to be tired, annoyed, perplexed. What is he doing? There are Jews to minister to. What are we doing in this God-forsaken region, Jesus? We're touching and interacting with all these unclean pagan people. We're going to have to do weeks of ceremonial hand-washing now. And before we get into the story of what he does for this blind deaf man, I want you to understand, historically speaking, that people who could not speak, people who were deaf and mute, had a very hard life. And as Mark begins to record this special healing story of all the people he's healed, he pinpoints this one, and there's a big reason for it. It's a deaf, mute man brought by his friends or his family, one of the two or both. Now understand, being deaf and mute in this time especially early on before there was something called speech therapy. It's a terrible burden. They were looked down upon. They were outcasts. They were considered lower than regular people. And there were so many physical limitations. There was not a world that was designed to help them. There were social and cultural aspersions that were cast on them. There's no hearing aids, no speech classes. There's not even sign language. They are hopeless and limited to a hard, sad life with no voice in community. In fact, it was the same whether they were in Jewish culture or Gentile culture. People in this condition were considered insane, even demon-possessed. It's a life without hope for anything better, with only family to care for them, and his family brings him to Jesus. And they get there, and the scripture gives us the indication that they just cast him at his feet. They, they were desperate, and they pushed him forward right at Jesus' feet in hopes that he can be healed. So that's the history. That's the scene of what's going on. I want to talk about the spiritual part of this passage. What does Jesus do? What is he, how does he do it, and why? I've titled this More Than a Healing. Yes, there's a Boston reference there, but you know. Yes, the band like that. This healing is different from the others that day. Starting with the fact that Jesus pulls him aside to deal with him personally, intimately. Not a healing in front of the crowd, but he gets to the feet of Jesus, and instead of just healing him there, which he could have, Jesus grabs him by the hand, takes him around the corner 
to where the crowd is not in private. And the first thing Jesus does is he, he touches the man's ears. Then Jesus licks his own fingers and then touches the man's tongue. You know what he's doing? He's not healing him here. Jesus is taking the time to have compassion. He's communicating with the man. It's a precious, personal, one-on-one sign language between the creator of the universe and this outcast man who has no voice. It's Jesus showing compassion, sympathy. He's saying, I get it. I know what the problem is. It's your ears. It's your tongue. And I'm going to fix it. Nobody has ever shown this man such compassion, sympathy, concern, or care. And Jesus is displaying what will become a life-changing, compassionate moment. And the scripture says after he does the touching of the tongue and the ears and, and that personal intimate sign language in their private intimate setting, Jesus looks up to heaven and he sighs very deeply. He is communicating, again, compassion. He's also making sure the deaf mute man by sign language knows where the healing is going to come from. His sigh is not just a reference to man's, uh, to his plight, but it's also a reference to the plight of all humanity. The depravity of the world is overwhelming to Jesus sometimes, and he knows that's why he has come to die. And he speaks the Aramaic word, epfatha. It means be opened. And suddenly, not only can this man hear, he can speak. Think about this. He's been deaf from birth. He's never heard one word from anyone. And now he can communicate. He speaks fluently. No therapy, no tutoring, no classes. He has immediately full speech. Think about this for a moment. He's had no voice his whole life, and now he can say whatever is in his heart and mind. Whatever emotions he's experiencing, he can express it freely. And Jesus says, don't say anything to anyone else because the story is not complete. There's going to be my crucifixion and there's my resurrection. There's so much more about the gospel that you don't know yet. But for the first time in his life, this man has a voice. He has something to say. And it's a powerful message. And as much as Jesus doesn't want him to speak, he's created a, a monster in some ways. The guy can't shut up. He's got a voice. For the first time, he's got a voice. And he is going to make sure it is heard. And the people around there, they see this perfection. Here's what the, here's what the Gentile witnesses say. He has done all things well. And in the Greek, that perfect tense means this. He is continuing to do things well continuously. In other words, the things he has done, he did really well, and it has continued to be really, really good all along the way. Like the people he healed are still healed. Not only can the blind see, it's 2020 vision. Not only can the deaf and mute hear and speak, they hear perfectly and speak better than us. Not only can the lame walk, they can run and dance. Not only are the sick made well, they're in better health than we are. He has done all things continuously well. 
But there's something else that happens that is stunning in this story. There's a reason why this particular healing was set apart from all the other ones. It's because it fulfilled an important prophecy in Isaiah. This is the more important subtle point I want you to get. Why this isn't just some other healing. This one's different, and it's very special. See, the Jews, the disciples who are there, right? They're the only Jews that are there. They would know why this is special, because there is a specific, well-known word that is used by Mark to describe this man. The Greek word is mogalelos. It means hardly talking, dumb, tongue-tied, having an impediment in his speech. Why is that word special? Because get this, it only appears one other time in the Bible. And actually, it appears in the very popular, well-known Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's an extremely rare word. And Jews who are familiar with the Greek translation of the Old Testament would know this word is very special in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6. And it's not used anywhere else in the Old Testament and nowhere else in the New Testament but these two places. There are tons of words that could have been used to describe the deaf mute man, but this is the one they chose. Why would Mark use this rare, unusual word to describe this deaf mute man? Here's why. Because it's for Jewish ears to hear and see. Here's the passage in Isaiah. Oh, this is powerful. And I just can't wait. Well, okay, I'll slow down. I'm excited. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute. There's the word right there. I bolded it for you. Mogalelos. Sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. See, several preceding chapters before Isaiah 35, it's a long list of prophecies about judgment against places like Egypt, Tyre and Sidon, Jerusalem, Edom. It's chapters and chapters of descriptions of judgment on both Gentile and Jewish regions. Tyre is chapter 23, Jerusalem chapter 28, Edom is chapter 34. But chapter 35 describes after the judgments, there is a time of restoration, a time of peace, a time of joy, a time of unity that comes after all the turmoil. And Jesus takes this man who otherwise would have been ignored and scourged and given no voice in society, he uses this man to be the fulfillment of a prophecy that every Jew would know about in Isaiah chapter 35. This story is Jesus saying, hey, I am Messiah. The transition from judgment to salvation has begun, and I'm here to declare doom to hope, or I'm here to declare doom to fear, and celebrate hope. I'm going to turn sorrow to joy. And the healing of this Mogalelos, Gentile, deaf mute, what does it lead to? Singing for joy in the wilderness. Streams flowing in the desert. What is the wilderness, you ask? The theme all throughout Scripture is that the wilderness is a place where evil resides. 
And it's a reference to Gentile lands. Fascinating, isn't it? He's saying, the mute will sing for joy in Gentile lands and streams of water will flow through the wilderness. What is water representing? Life. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy of the salvation to the Gentiles. An undeniable link to Isaiah 35. It's a statement. Restoration has begun. Messiah has come. And the Gentiles will have a voice to declare the message of hope to a hurting, dying world. And this formerly deaf, mute man has a voice. Far more important than any voice from the temple or anybody in Rome. His is the most important voice in the world other than Jesus at this moment. Okay, the personal. I want to talk about our voice in the wilderness. This was my Sunday sermon preview this week. One of God's most effective kingdom tools are desperate, hopeless Gentiles. See, we have several things in common with this deaf mute man. We're all Gentiles, and we are all desperate without Jesus. Imperfect, godless, uncouth, unclean Gentiles as far removed from Jehovah as we can be, and then bam, just like with the deaf mute man, he calls us aside one-on-one, personally, intimately, and gives us ears to hear and a voice to declare his mercy and grace to a hurting, tumultuous world. It's amazing how effectively God uses the voice of Gentiles to spread the kingdom, isn't it? Right now, today, in the world, it is the Gentile voice that is the most prevalent and effective in taking the message of Jehovah to lost people. Stats are undeniable. And since this message, this passage, is about how Jesus gives us a voice in the wilderness, I'm going to take the rest of the sermon today to give you my voice. I want to warn you ahead of time, it won't be perfect. I'm I'm afraid I might fail to hit some specific points that everyone believes that I should hit. But I did put a lot of time into this. I talked to precious brothers and sisters in Christ from all different backgrounds and minorities, people that I love and trust to get their thoughts and their perspectives. But I wanted my Grace Life family to hear this first. There is no better time to recognize the importance of the redeemed voice in the wilderness than this week. And I struggle, I'm just being real with you, the the racist murder in Minnesota is evidence of what? The depravity that's in the desert. So what voice will we have? See, I struggled this week with the purity of my own heart, wondering if speaking out would be for my benefit or for others. And let me explain. I didn't want to use my voice as some white dude making sure everyone knows I'm against racism. Somehow maybe subconsciously trying to use this voice against racism to inoculate myself against seeming to be insensitive to the plight and the struggle that black people have in America. But I have one shot at my first words to make sure it's more important than that and much deeper than that. 
And so here it is. The racist murder of George Floyd was disgusting and horrible, as was the violent looting by some afterwards. Happening, I'm not talking about protests, I'm talking about violence. But here's what I learned this week about George Floyd. He's a believer. He relentlessly served his church. He has an incredible testimony of salvation and transformation. He's my brother. He's our brother. And this weekend I read the stories about how George Floyd used his voice in his community and in Houston's third ward to take the message of hope and redemption in the gospel of Jesus to people who needed to hear it. I will tell you this, if George Floyd, if we were privileged enough to have George Floyd as part of our church, he would have been one of our most beloved people in the Grace Life family, from what I read about him. And both his murder and the subsequent violence has victimized innocent people, and it has caused incredible pain, despair, grief, and loss. And so following Jesus' example... We must display genuine, intimate compassion for our friends and loved ones and those maybe we don't even know that well that are hurting from the evil scourge that is racism. Matter of fact, in chapter 7, we've seen two examples of people victimized by this filthy human thing we call racism. The Gentile woman and the Gentile deaf man both were despised, thought of as lower class people. Here's what I know. If that cop's knee had been on my son's throat, I would have been filled with rage. If the rioters torched the nightlife center, something that is so precious to me, I would have been filled with incredible sadness. Because you see, without us, having to, without us trying to express genuine compassion for those hurting, for those suffering from the pain of racism, you know what happens to our voice? It becomes feckless and meaningless. But see, the problem doesn't just end with calling out racism. Racism is a disgusting symptom of the real darkness in America and the world. And our Jesus makes it indelibly clear, undeniably clear, that the depravity of the human heart is the root to our problem. You want the reality? I hope this doesn't offend anyone. The terrible, brutal, racist murder of George Floyd wasn't even the most evil thing that happened in America this week. Throughout America, human depravity spawned hate crimes, murders, rapes, human sex trafficking, organ harvesting, late-term abortions, all kind of evil. The difference is most of the other evil wasn't recorded on a cell phone. Can you imagine if on every corner, every American act of human depravity was captured on video and put on social media, as this one was? Yet, somehow, everybody seems perplexed. How can this keep happening? 
How do we fix the system? We've got to change our society. We've got to do better. That's the, the rallying cry for everyone. But what George Floyd's murder and the violence reveal is that evil resides in human hearts and only Christ can eradicate it. Jesus made it clear. The answer doesn't rest with government. He said that. No government, in fact, in the, in the recorded human history, did you know no government has ever by law or decree eradicated racism? Think about that. Politics, new legislation, a different tax code, they're all powerless as well. They've been tried, yet depravity persists. Police are outfitted with body cams recording every move, and still it doesn't stop the brutality of some very depraved few. The violent rioters know they're being recorded with cell phones and posted on Facebook, and it doesn't stop them. You know why? Because men don't have a cure for racism or evil in Minneapolis, America, or the world. The wilderness. Let me put this verse up. Focus on verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a leper, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Children of God, Christians who have been saved by the grace of Jesus of all races, we must, listen carefully, we must not let our voice that has been given by the grace of God be wasted on stuff that is proven ineffective. We must not waste our voice on divisive politics, political correctness, government, hate speech, secular solutions that have been proven ineffective time and again, highfalutin speech, and gutless platitudes. They don't work. It's time for something different. And we have a responsibility to use our redeemed voice to speak out against racism. But you know what? Speaking out against racism, don't take this the wrong way, but in some ways, especially in weeks like this, that's kind of the easy part. In times like these, condemning racism is almost fashionable. How disgusting is that? A fashion that just will fade away when the news headlines change? Condemning racism doesn't take courage. If that's all we do, just condemn racism, our voice will be impotent, feckless, and a waste of everyone's time. No, we have a redeemed voice. It is better than that. Our voice, while we condemn things like racism, must also be laced with the unfettered, politically incorrect gospel of Jesus that says man is depraved and he needs the power of God's transformation. We are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It's a quote from Paul. And if we do not use our redeemed voice to both condemn racism and speak the gospel, I say to you, 
the love of Christ is not in us. That's right. If we don't do both, condemn and speak the gospel, the love of Christ is not in us. It's a game. The gospel must be unmistakably, intricately woven into our redeemed voice. It is the only antidote for racism and depravity. And like the mute in Mark 7 and the Gentiles in Isaiah 35, the gospel is the chorus of our song in the wilderness. It is the rivers of water that stream and flow in the desert. It is the song and voice of desperate, hopeless Gentiles just like us who have had our ears opened and our mouths opened and been given a redeemed voice by God's grace to have the privilege to not only condemn racism, but to proclaim the cure, which is the gospel of Jesus, to a hurting world that is desperately searching for transformation and says, why does this keep happening? Here's why. Because you're missing the power of salvation. Heavenly Dad, give us courage to speak with full voice. A voice that doesn't just stop at condemnation, but also provides a path to transformation. We don't want to be fashionable in our denouncement of racism. We want to be active with the voice that you gave us in the cure. We want our actions and our words to line up with the gospel, to the example that you have given of compassion, truth, love, forgiveness, and restoration through the power of the cross. Lord Jesus, give us the voice of the redeemed. Because whether the world recognizes it or not, they need it desperately. And we need to be that voice to prove that the love of God is actually in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray this week you would continue to join with believers all across the country and the world in praying, not only for what we face as a society, but that society would be ready for the cure, the transformation of Jesus Christ through the gospel. May we be the voice for both. Have a good week.